Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So, Kellen, we get a lot of people reaching out to us, giving feedback on the show, asking questions, highlighting what was meaningful to them in the show. And the other day, someone reached out and I recognized their name because I had seen some of their posts on Reddit before. He does an art series on Collapse, and he's been posting them to the sub, and it's wicked cool art. And so when he reached out to me, he he was just reaching out to say hi and ask some questions. And since I recognized him, I was like, hey, dude, I love your art. It's so awesome. You do a great job. And he was kind enough. I asked him if we could use some of his art for our cover photos on Twitter and Patreon. So if you visit either of those pages, you're going to see some art from him. His name's Spencer Davey. We're going to link to his website where you can find him and learn more about his art in the description. And while you're on Patreon admiring his art, do us a favor. And while you're there, just pick one of the plans. There'll be like a five or a 10 or a 20 next to it. You won't regret it. And neither will we. On that note, we do have plans to do some cool things for our patrons. Right now, it's just that you're supporting us because you like what we're doing and you appreciate the work. But in the future, we are going to add some cool features in there for our patrons. And we appreciate all the support we've gotten up to this point. So, Kellen, I think if you ask anyone to look back on 2020, like we would all agree that it's been crazy and that it's been intense. Most people would highlight the pandemic and the issues that it's caused. But as you and I have had some time to reflect and prepare for this episode and think back about what 2020 was and what really happened, we kept coming up with a whole lot of things that we had forgotten about. And it kind of just piled up to this realization that it is so easy to just move past serious things. We only focus on a few of the worst things and we forget about everything else that's happened. If we could go back to middle of the year 2019, and I could tell you everything that was about to happen over the course of the next 18 months, I think your mind would just be absolutely blown. Yeah, I totally agree. And frankly, I'm in kind of an interesting mindset right now because I thought to myself when we were talking about doing this episode, hey, I lived through 2020. I know what happened. Is it really that important to talk about all the events that have happened over the last 18 months? And yet today, after doing a bunch of research, I think I'm more scared for the future than I've been after any of our previous conversations. I think anybody who listens to this episode is going to be frightened because not only is it insane just to see how much has taken place, but it's also crazy to think about the implications of a lot of the things that have happened. Seriously. And the purpose of this episode isn't just to rehash what we've been through, because like you said, we all lived it. But more it is to look at what happened, how it applies to the collapse principles that we have specifically already talked about. And like you said, the future implications of what those things could mean or lead to. 
So for me, you know, I remember in 2019 hearing about the insane fires in Australia. That was kind of the first big thing that was just like, oh man, this is nuts. Like we're gonna be talking about these fires forever because they are just so insane. And they were, they were huge. There was more than 46 million acres worth of land that burned in Australia. In this show, we talk about a lot of big numbers and we always try and put them into perspective. So 46 million acres is about 72,000 square miles. Sorry for those of you outside of the US. I didn't have time to look up the stats, convert it to metric. But that 72,000 miles is slightly bigger than the state of Washington in the United States. There were 10,000 structures that were destroyed. It cost over $100 billion in expenses. 34 people died directly from the fires themselves, and another nearly 450 died from secondary things like smoke inhalation. So, I mean, this is a huge catastrophe that can, at least in some part, be blamed on climate change, and which we can expect to get worse in the future. And we saw the same thing happen in the U.S. Wildfires here in California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, as well as a record-breaking hurricane season. And if you are listening to this episode from the U.S., if you're American, you probably heard a ton about the California fires. And you probably heard a lot more about that than you did the Australia fires. And the funny thing is, and interestingly enough, in all of the Western United States this year, which was a record-breaking fire season, there was only 10 million acres burned. So it was less than a fourth of what was burned in Australia. However, it did destroy more structures and more people did die. There was 46 people that died in the U.S. from the fires. It did $20 billion in damage. So when you compare the size, it's crazy how much more burned in Australia than here, and yet we hear so much about the fires here. And it's not to say that one was more important than the other. They're all a sign of the same thing, and that is that we are heating up, that we can expect these types of fires to happen more often in the future. Yeah, and to have one really big fire in one area would be concerning. But the fact that there were record-breaking fires in many places around the globe is particularly concerning to me. You were the one who introduced me to the term zombie fires, which I had never heard before. But in certain areas, usually up near the Arctic, in Siberia, and even in Alaska and northern Canada, the ground has a soft surface called peat. And basically, it comes from slow decomposition of organic matter over a long period of time. And when a fire springs up, not only does it have all of that as fuel... But it also means that even when the temperatures drop and you're not seeing massive fires and flames, the fire never really dies. It continues to smolder beneath the surface of the ground. And so when I looked into it, you know, an area the size of Portugal was affected by these fires in Siberia. And it's because up around the Arctic, the temperature is increasing. It's warming at more than twice the rate of the rest of the world. So it's drier, it's warmer, and the predictions are that we're just going to see more and more of these zombie fires that spring up earlier and earlier each year. Yeah, I don't know about you, but growing up learning about permafrost, you, know, you you learned that Siberia and the Arctic Circle was this frozen tundra, that there was meters of frozen ground. But now, just a couple decades later, and the permafrost is melting. And that permafrost now leaves the dry peat, which can be burned. Yeah, and one quick comment on that that's really interesting is those fires spit out a ton of greenhouse gases. And so it's interesting that these are a result of climate change, but they're also accelerating and causing climate change. Yeah, I read that as those fires burn, they release a lot of ash. 
An ash can work in a couple ways because it can block sunlight from reaching surfaces. But at the same time, when that black ash falls on Arctic ice, because it's darker, it absorbs more sunlight and causes Arctic ice to melt faster. So it's another feedback loop that kind of goes full circle. Permafrost melts, it becomes drier, it releases more greenhouse gases, which warms the atmosphere more, which raises the temperature, which makes the permafrost melt faster, which causes an increase in fires, which causes more ash, which causes the ice to melt faster. And so there's a couple different feedback loops there that are just pretty crazy. And I expect that we'll see more and more of these fires and more intense fires in the future. So if that was the only thing we had to discuss today, was all the fires that happened, that alone would be concerning. And especially because it sounds like we're moving toward a new normal, that we can expect increased fires year after year, right? 2021 might not have as many acres burned, but the average just keeps going up. But while parts of the world are burning, other parts of the world are getting hit with tropical storms. So if you look at 2020's Atlantic hurricanes, there were 30 named storms. And 12 of those made landfall, which the previous record was 9. 13 of the 30 developed into hurricanes. 6 of those further intensified into major hurricanes. And to me, it makes me think about what you've taught me about catabolic collapse. Right, That as all these problems increase, it becomes increasingly difficult to make the repairs and fix the infrastructure. So I looked into a little bit of what kind of damage was done by some of these hurricanes. So of the most notable hurricanes, Hurricane Isaias caused $4.8 billion in damage overall. Hurricane Laura, which I heard more about, caused at least $19 billion in damage and 77 deaths. And one that I don't remember hearing a lot about, but it was at the end of October, Hurricane Eda. It led to 211 people dying and caused $7.9 billion in damage. So a record number of hurricanes this year. You know, people think of 2020 and they think of the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But the fact that we had more hurricanes than ever before, and that again, just like the wildfires, we're seeing this trend where the averages just keep increasing. It doesn't paint a pretty picture of the future. You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about the hurricanes this last year and I kind of caught myself thinking like, man, there were sure a lot of them, but none of them seemed to be like that epic. They weren't, we didn't have any Hurricane Harveys or Sandys or Katrinas, but we shouldn't have to have a $125 billion storm for us to take notice. Like it shouldn't be normal to be like, oh, the storm only did $20 billion in damage and the storm only did $8 billion in damage. Like we are talking about a record hurricane season with more Atlantic hurricanes than ever. And they just didn't land in populated enough places to necessarily do the same amount of damage. And will we get that lucky every other year? Probably not, especially as they intensify and as we get more and more each year. This brings up one point here sort of at the beginning of the episode that I want to make. And that's that we're going to touch on a lot of things here. And we want to make sure that that our listeners know that, you know, while we may touch really deeply on some things and some things we'll barely touch on at all and some things we won't even mention because there was just so much this year, we're not trying to place priority on certain things. We're not trying to belittle or say other things didn't have significance. So if if you have something in mind that we don't mention here today, it's not because we didn't think it was important or epic. We just realize that there's so much stuff going on. Everybody's impacted in different ways. These are just the things that stood out to us that we wanted to highlight here. Yeah, and I also think it's worth mentioning, we throw out numbers, right? This many people died, this many billions of dollars of damage, and we do so kind of flippantly, right? We're just trying to cover a lot of ground, but it's not lost on us that this is causing serious suffering. And my heart goes out to anybody who feels like they were directly affected by these major issues and serious catastrophes. 
But while we're talking about things that we saw over the last 18 months that were caused directly or indirectly by climate change, you know, in April, we were right in the heart of the chaos over the pandemic. And not many of us even realized that in Eastern Africa, there was an insane swarm of locusts. In fact, a bigger swarm of locusts than the country of Kenya has ever seen. Other areas haven't seen anything this large, you know, for the last 70 years. But it was a swarm of locusts that at one point covered 930 square miles and left millions of people without food. And again, that's another thing that can be tied back to extreme weather patterns. Increased moisture in certain areas, along with the increased heat, it's a perfect recipe for creating these huge swarms of locusts. And by the way, this problem isn't over. You know, Eastern Africa, it's not like winter comes around and everything freezes and all the bugs die. There is seasonality, but there's indications that this will be another serious locust year. Yeah, and let's hope they're better prepared. You know, I read that part of the issue was supply chain issues with pesticides. They couldn't get enough pesticide. They couldn't get it where it needed to be in the right place. There wasn't enough of the planes that are used to drop it. And so, especially in the poorer areas that were getting hit by these locusts, they were underprioritized. And like you said, that left a lot of people without food, without their farms, without their livelihoods. So for now, the last thing to kind of say about climate this year was Arctic sea ice and to what extent and area we got down to. So it was the second worst year for extent, meaning the total surface area of the Arctic Ocean that was covered in ice. And some people will say, well, it was just the second worst. And the number one worst year was in 2012. That was eight years ago. So obviously things aren't that bad. But you can't look at it just by extent. And that's how most people do look at it. You know, 2012 was an El Nino year. It was a drastically terrible year. And we almost matched it this year in a normal year that was not an El Nino year. So that's number one. Number two, the ice is a ton thinner than it was back then. So even though the extent was more, the actual area of the ice is much less. What's called multi-year ice, so ice that stayed frozen and keeps freezing thicker and thicker year over year, is almost gone. There's very little of that left. Most of the ice left is ice that simply refreezes in the winter and then melts again in the summer. And each year that's going to get worse until we do hit a point, probably in the next few years, few to several years, where we'll hit our first blue ocean event and have an ice-free summer. Okay, so going back to 2019, we had the Australian wildfires. We said, okay, this is pretty crazy. And what came next, at least for me at the time, I thought this is going to be the defining crisis of 2020. And that was the intensifying crisis with Iran and the West, particularly the United States. So they've given this crisis a name, which I didn't know. They're calling it the 2019 to 2021 Persian Gulf Crisis. For all we know, it will be renamed to the 2019 to 2022 and then 2023 But I want to preface this conversation quickly by making something very clear to our American audience and really to anyone in the West who hasn't done their research on America and Britain's involvement in Iran in the 20th century. There's a really amazing book I recommend called All the Shah's Men, and it describes the U.S. and British role in Iran, essentially destroying Iran's democracy through a coup in the 1950s that was backed by the CIA. And it was all in the name of oil and imperialism and Western superiority. And believe it or not, there was a time back when that the Iranians really loved Americans. And we screwed that up. And so I do want to clarify, as I'm about to talk about Iran, my viewpoint on it. And I think it's always good to step back and look at when there's a conflict or a war or something happening, where are both sides coming from? 
So throughout 2019, there was an intensification of those hostilities between the U.S. and Iran and their allies. It started when Iran shot down a U.S. drone and then Britain seized an Iranian oil tanker, which was then reciprocated by Iran seizing a British oil tanker. And then things really started getting dicey when an American contractor was killed by Hezbollah, which is an Iranian-backed terrorist organization. So that caused a back and forth of attacks between the U.S. and Hezbollah, and which eventually resulted in the U.S., killing a man by the name of Qasem Soleimani via a drone attack. So this is where it gets crazy because Soleimani was not just some guy in the Iranian military. Like he was the major general of the Quds force and the U.S. blew him to pieces with a drone strike. I mean, if you consider the roles being reversed and Iran assassinating with a drone, you know, President Trump's right-hand man in the military, what that would result in. As I mentioned earlier, Iran's our enemy because we made them our enemy and now we've just bombed their top military leader to pieces. So they reacted. This story is just so crazy to me. They reacted by firing ballistic missiles into an Iraqi base that held American troops. No Americans were killed in the attack. And because of that, Trump made the decision not to retaliate directly because he said there was no casualties, which isn't exactly true because a casualty doesn't technically mean a death. Injuries are considered casualties as well. And there were something like 100 service members who were diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries from that attack. But the whole thing ended in sort of the weirdest of ways, and it was by Iran shooting down a commercial airline out of the sky with 176 people in it because they thought that it was the U.S. attacking them. All 176 people on the plane died, and a lot of them were Canadians. And I think Canada did the most Canadian thing they could have, which was to urge de-escalation of the situation and basically put the blame on the U.S. in a sort of passive-aggressive way, saying, you know, if you hadn't escalated anything in the first place, those Canadians would be home with their families tonight. So the whole story is almost like one of those real life is stranger than fiction. Who would have ever imagined within a couple of weeks, you know, we're bombing the top military guy and then they're shooting down their own planes out of the sky and it's just such a weird thing. Now, one of my biggest fears is that as a dying empire, the U.S. will do what many dying empires do, which is try to prove their standing in the world with unjustifiable military strength. You know, I worry that we'll put ourselves in more situations or in more wars that we can't win, driving up the human cost, the financial cost, the environmental cost by increasing our military footprint, all the while accelerating catabolic collapse and just leading a ton of suffering in our wake. As more money goes towards military spending, that's less money that can go to other places. And when you get caught up in a war that you can't get yourself out of, the well-being of the people is sacrificed for the sake of winning what is usually a pointless war. Yeah, it sounds like a big mess, but it also sounds like we're fortunate that it didn't escalate more than it did. From my understanding, we're not out of the woods yet. There's still a lot of hostility with Iran. Yeah, they, they basically said that there was no moratorium on their exacting revenge for the killing of Soleimani. It's something that I'm sure they will hold over the U.S. You know, as an excuse for any attack, whether it's through a proxy group like Hezbollah in the future. And we'll have to see what happens with the nuclear deal. You know, it's not necessarily this situation with Iran that worries me. It's more just the idea of international conflict, where it can lead, especially coming from, in my opinion, a country with a penchant for starting wars and getting into other countries' foreign affairs. So all of that that you just mentioned happened at the beginning of 2020, which is interesting because at the very beginning of February, Donald Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives. And for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's the only president to ever be impeached twice. 
But that first time, it was because he had been withholding military aid from Ukraine, right? Because he was trying to force an investigation into Hunter Biden, which that alone is a whole nother can of worms. And you look at the last couple of years, even the last 18 months, and you see our relationship with Ukraine, you see our relationship with Russia, you see what's happening with the U.S. in relation to a lot of countries in that part of the world, and it seems like we have not set ourselves up for success. For sure. And again, it's this whole thing to me about a, a dying empire. We, we know we're on our way out. China is overtaking us in GDP and production and all these different things, technological advancements. We're not keeping up. We're falling behind. We have our military in bases throughout the planet. And I think that we're going to start seeing more and more countries saying, get out. You know, Iraq kicked us out during the whole Iran thing because we overstepped. And I think we're going to keep seeing that. The U.S. without its military doesn't have much, honestly. An empire is an empire because it has its foot in other people's countries on their resources. And if we no longer have that, if we don't have relationships and allies, it's an existential threat for a country. And so that's where I worry about something being done out of desperation. Now, we talk a lot about the U.S. because we live here and it's important to us and our well-being. But there was international conflict all over the world. Right This year we saw several pretty crazy conflicts kick up. We're not going to spend a lot of time diving into them, but I guess we'll just name a few of them here. So Azerbaijan and Armenia is a conflict that has been going on for a long time. And that interestingly enough ended this year because of a relatively new type of warfare, which is drones. People say that that conflict probably would have ended very differently if it wasn't for the drones. And so it's interesting to see kind of the direction that warfare is going and how, for relatively little money, a military can significantly up their game against someone who might otherwise be stronger. You know, we're seeing this coup in Myanmar that's currently going on right now. You know, I feel deeply for the people there who are affected by this. We don't know how it's going to result. We know that innocent people out protesting for their freedoms are being massacred in the streets, basically. And it's terrifying. You know, there's the sort of small conflicts between India and Pakistan, but that have every potential to explode. You know, there's this line of control that borders between the two. There's a dispute over the land and who should own it. And they kind of have this rule where they don't shoot each other, but they'll beat each other to death. And so in November, there was this big skirmish where they pushed each other off of cliffs and all this stuff happened. And it's probably just a matter of time before that conflict explodes. Yeah, and I've learned recently, while we were all caught up in what was going on with the election in November, there were some rebels in Ethiopia that attacked a military base. And so Ethiopia announced the military offensive and a conflict broke out and apparently one million people have been displaced right and a lot of people had to flee as refugees to sudan and so these are just a few examples obviously there's a lot more going on out there and also it's important to note that international conflict or conflict between nations or within nations is nothing new it's always been that way. It will always be that way. And so while conflicts aren't necessarily a sign of collapse or impending collapse, it's also important to note that these types of conflicts do have their place in collapse. You know, the Roman Empire was eventually taken down by the barbarians invading, as one example. These conflicts do tend to accelerate catabolic collapse because of the expenses, because of the loss of human life, because of the strain that it puts on economies. And so not only can these conflicts accelerate catabolic collapse, but all the other issues that we're seeing, like we talked about in the water episode, for example, will intensify and create more chances for these conflicts to grow into something big. I hear you say that, and it makes me sad because you would hope that in a year like 2020, when there's a global pandemic, that you would see 
nations pulled together and you would hope to see you know these international conflicts at least take a break and for everyone to kind of push their skirmishes aside for a little while while they're trying to deal with their own people dying but perhaps what's even more concerning at least for the u.s is the internal conflict that took place so if you'll remember back on march 13th police busted into the home of brianna taylor and shot her while she was asleep And then in May, a video was released of what took place back in February in which Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And when we get to the end of May, that's when George Floyd is killed during a police arrest. And with all the racial tensions that were already taking place, that example of police brutality was especially infuriating because people could see the video and see that the officer was kneeling on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. So later, you know, in June, police shoot and kill Richard Brooks. In August, Jacob Blake is shot and paralyzed from the waist down. So that's just a recap, but all of that caused the country to erupt into these protests, which took place in the U.S., but they were quickly followed by protests around the globe, right? And they're, they're protests against racial inequality and against police brutality, But those protests quickly turned into riots. And you'll remember that's when you start seeing police firing into crowds with tear gas and cars and buildings lit on fire. You know, windows broken in and it starts to look like a war scene. And then if you'll remember, as it keeps escalating, you know, in July, Trump sends federal police into Portland, Oregon. And basically the whole summer is this series of clashes. So since Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri... I've always paid really close attention to when these things happen. And I spent a lot of time, my wife probably was super annoyed with me because I would sit on my phone and watch live video of the riots. And I was watching before they became riots. They were just peaceful protests in Minneapolis. But I could tell that there was an air there, something about to change. And it just felt heavy. And yeah, all of a sudden, a building's on fire, right? They burned a big old tire or something like that. And then Target's being looted. And then the next night... They overtake the police station and light the police station on fire. And then there's this escalation with the police, like you said, where all of a sudden they're firing tear gas into the crowds. They're shooting rubber bullets at people's faces. They're blinding people. And it's so interesting because all of this is happening now because we can see it. Because it's being videotaped. It's right in front of us. It's not that these shootings haven't been happening in the past or that the brutality hasn't been happening. It's always been happening. It's just that people can actually see it now. Not only that, but we can also see the riots and we can see how the police react to that and to people. You can see the unmarked vans with federal officers dragging people into them. They don't have any badges or anything like that on, right? Who the crap are these guys and what are they doing? And then you get this scene in Washington, D.C. where Trump walks to the church and he sends out the police to push back the crowd, to fire on the crowd. You see reporters from other countries being shoved over, hit in the face so that he can go to a church and lift up a Bible and get a photo op. And then the priest at the church comes out and says, yeah, we didn't tell him he could do that. (laughs) It is so, it just feels like so much of a dystopia. Watching that all unfold this year was definitely, it just felt so unreal to me. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up because not only were there these racial tensions, but it quickly got mixed up with all these political tensions. And I'm sure we'll touch on that more, but it brings me back to our conversations previously around echo chambers, around you know, media and social media and the way it's polarizing individuals and how polarized the political system is right now. And we're talking about all these things and we haven't even mentioned in detail the global pandemic, 
Right now, just in the U.S., you know, over 525,000 people have died from COVID-19. And I know that some will say that's overreported, some will say that's underreported, but that is insane. And the deaths alone are so tragic. But you think about all the political divide that that caused and the conspiracy theories and how strongly people felt about not wearing masks or wearing masks and the economic toll, right? So many big, huge crazy, awful things happened as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, we literally had people murdered because they were trying to enforce mask rules. And beyond the deaths, you also have just an insane number of people that got sick and in a way that many of them still have not recovered. We don't know the long-term implications of the sickness. We don't know what's going to happen with the disease. Is it going to continue to morph? Is it going to evade vaccines? We really have no idea. But some of the biggest pain from the pandemic that we experience and that we'll continue to experience is what it did to us economically. You know, I've heard some interesting names. The most boring is the COVID-19 recession. I've also heard the Great Lockdown, as well as Corona Session. I hadn't heard that one before. And it's hard to know where to start with this because it's so big and it has such wide-reaching implications. You know, there's so much potential for future damage that it's hard to know if the damage is kind of already done, what we've seen this year, and does it get better from here, or are we really just seeing the beginning? Modeling done by the World Bank predicts that some regions won't see a recovery until 2025 or beyond. You know, and this is coming from an elite institution, and that's their optimistic scenario, like, probably means we have a tougher time than what they're predicting. So starting in March, you know, that, that first week, somewhere around the third or fourth week of March, we had 7 million people in the U.S. make unemployment claims. 7 million. And it's crazy because the numbers are still about the same now as they were just in September, which was six months ago, when it was around eight to 900,000 Americans each week claiming unemployment. To put it in perspective, before the pandemic, the normal weekly numbers were somewhere around 250,000. So we're at three times every week a worse rate than pre-pandemic. And on top of that, those are seasonally adjusted numbers. And the agencies that report these, they do some magic and they tweak the numbers. And there's all sorts of things that go into those numbers that don't make them super accurate. And so it's actually worse than what's being reported. Just in the first four months, there was 40 million people that claimed unemployment. That's 25% of people that are eligible for employment. And obviously, it's hard to quantify the problem because many of those people got their job back or got new jobs. But the unemployment numbers also don't tell us who's getting paid less than they were making before and whose hours were cut. If I had a full-time job before, but now my hours are cut down to 15 hours a week, I'm not included at all in those numbers. You, know, you also have people who were let go and just didn't try and find new employment. So the question is now, where does the unemployment lead? Do people slowly get their jobs back? Or do we witness the slow collapse of a lot of the types of businesses that we're used to seeing around? You know, we're witnessing a lot of brick and mortar stores going out of business. Does that continue? Does the restaurant business come fully back? Does Disneyland ever reopen? You know, or do these people kind of stay permanently out of work? Yeah, and I don't know how many businesses close down. Like you said, even major institutions have declared that it's going to take years for a potential recovery. But this past year also just showed me how strange our economy is. Like on March 16th, the Dow Jones Industrial had the biggest drop in a single day in its entire history. And then the next day, it experienced the biggest increase in a single day in the last 11 years. And you look at the way that the stock market has been bouncing around and how, for the most part, it seems 
inflated, right? Maybe just boosted up by all the stimulus and stuff like that. And you look at all the people that are suffering financially and you add into that equation the fact that somehow the housing market in most of the country has gone up by like, what is it, 18%? And the implications of what that means this year and in the coming years has me concerned. Yeah, and it's interesting because the housing market, there's a shortage right now of homes in America. People are paying top dollar to get into houses, whether that's to buy or to rent. And on the other hand, you know, obviously with millions of people out of work, you have millions of people who can't pay their rent or their mortgage. And so if you're a government, you kind of have a dilemma on your hands, right? On the one hand, you can force millions of people out of their homes and onto the streets, which is not good optics, nor is it morally right, nor is it good when those people rebel and revolt. But on the other hand, you've got banks and landlords and a debt bubble you have to keep inflated. And so here we are right now, a year later, and the eviction moratorium just keeps getting pushed further and further out. Now, there are some areas in which that's going away. You know, they just ruled it unconstitutional in Texas for there to be a moratorium. And so that will likely get lifted, and that could cascade into other states doing the same thing. The most recent data I could find was from December of 2020. So it was three months ago from the time this episode is airing. But in December, more than 5% of Americans are still not paying their rent or mortgage. So 1 in 20 are not paying their rent or mortgage. That's over 10 million Americans. So the question at this point is, who wins out in that battle? Like I mentioned, we're at the height of this housing shortage. And so you've got landlords who are required to continue renting to tenants who aren't paying. And the landlords are ticked because they could be making a ton of money in rent because the costs are so high right now. You've also got homeowners who aren't paying their mortgage, yet the value of their home keeps increasing. So they're making money on their house, even though they're not paying on it. And so at some point, something's got to give because either the landlords default on their mortgages and the banks become insolvent, or people get kicked to the streets and we'll get to see all the drama and sort of rising up that would come from that. And of course, there is a third option. And it's one that we've brought up in the past, specifically in episode five, which is on catabolic collapse, where in that episode, we talked about a hypothetical food shortage and how the government would just continually dish out money to try and solve that problem, right? So it's the same case here, right? The government can basically just keep spending money through these rental and landlord assistance programs to prop people up so they can stay in their homes, to prop landlords up so that they can pay the mortgage. But these things aren't free, right? The government is borrowing and spending a ton of money. And that puts us on, you know, a precarious path either to hyperinflation, the decimation of our infrastructure, or both. Because the money that's being spent there is both not being spent in other places, the money could be taken from other places to spend on these programs, or the creation of that money could lead to potential and eventual inflation. On that note, you know, our government has spent more than $6 trillion on this coronavirus through stimulus and other programs. We've talked in the past about how it's hard to really visualize and quantify how much money that is. But $6 trillion is just insane. Last year alone, 2020, saw a 23% rise in the amount of money that existed. It's just crazy. And there's all these questions about, you know, is this going to lead to hyperinflation or are we in such a state of deflation right now that all the money creation is necessary or it's going to counteract it? I don't know. And honestly, I don't think anyone really does. We're all kind of just flying by the seat of our pants, trusting that our leaders know what they're doing to keep the economy afloat. Will it work? You know, in the immediate term, maybe it will. But because we know what we know about the unsustainability of the financial system, you know, that our economic system requires continued growth, which requires increasing access to cheap forms of energy, it won't last forever. And this whole year has sure made it seem like to me, we're on a pretty quick pace to hitting that unsustainability face on. 
We've talked about a lot of things specific to 2020 and how crazy 2020 was. And you and I joked in past episodes about, oh, now that 2020 is over, things are just going to be magically better, right? Knowing all along that they wouldn't be. And yet I think a lot of people see 2020 as a fluke. Now, is a pandemic something that's going to happen every year? No, of course not. I know there is an argument for the fact that increased global temperatures, you know, and our use of antibiotics in agriculture is creating these kind of super viruses and diseases. And the melting of the permafrost, which is going to release all these potential diseases from 10,000 years ago. Yeah, so who knows what's going to happen when it comes to an increase in infectious diseases. It seems like that could be on the horizon, but I don't think anyone's claiming that we're going to see pandemic after pandemic in a short period of time. But you say, hey, we haven't seen a pandemic like this since, you know, 1918. And you might say, we haven't seen this kind of racial conflict since however many years ago. And we haven't seen this kind of hurricane damage since whatever year. And we haven't seen, right, all of these things are kind of colliding all at once. And that just brings me to the point that we might say, hey, 2020 was a crazy year, but... 2021 has not been any less crazy. Not only because we're still dealing with the pandemic and all of those economic consequences look like they're going to be catching up to us, but consider some of the things that have happened so far. We're only partway into the year. January 6th, storming of the Capitol. Now Congress is meeting to count the results of the Electoral College and kind of officially verify that Joe Biden is the president. And thousands of people have congregated and have marched to the Capitol and literally break into the Capitol building. Five people die, 130 people get injured, pipe bombs are planted. It's the most severe assault on the Capitol building since 1814, which is just crazy, right? Something that is being incited at the time by the President of the United States, which then leads to at least in part, the president of the United States being kicked off of Twitter and all of these other platforms. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that whether you love Trump or whether you hate Trump, the fact that these corporations can completely silence any certain voice has its own implications. You look at, in February, the Texas freeze. 4.5 million homes and businesses left without power. You know, the damages from the, from the blackouts, the estimate is that they will be at least $195 billion, which makes the blackouts the costliest disaster in the entire history of Texas. And those that run the power grid in Texas said they were just seconds or even minutes away from a catastrophic and complete failure of the Texas grid. Meaning they'd still be without power right now and probably for the next couple months to come. Yeah, and you know, more than 200,000 people lived in areas of Texas where water systems were completely non-operational. You know, millions had some water, but they had to boil it. There were all sorts of pipes burst and other issues. And sadly, you know, the death toll was around 70 people. Some of that is people literally freezing to death. Others were from people trying to heat their homes and doing it in a dangerous way, and so they die of carbon monoxide poisoning. But I learned that 60% of that region's grapefruit crop was destroyed and 100% of the orange crop. I mean, can you get more collapse than what happened in Texas? Because you've got something caused by climate change that wreaks havoc on infrastructure that wasn't being properly kept up. 
also due to supply chain issues with fossil fuels that was mismanaged, natural gas not being able to make it to where it needed to be. You did also have, you know, these wind turbines that were not working as they were supposed to. And you had a whole ton of people who were massively unprepared for what hit them. You know, you you hear these stories and people talking about like going outside and trying to get snow to take it inside to try and melt it to then try and flush their toilets. And obviously they were very lucky that it was salvaged in the last minute, that they were able to get everything turned back on. But it's just such a great example of what we can expect to happen over and over and over again on a more intense scale, on a bigger scale, until eventually it hits a point where we can't pay for it. We cannot pay for a $120 billion infrastructure failure every year, right? If that happened every year in Texas, they'd be hosed. And the more frequently that it happens, the more difficult it's going to be and the slower we're going to be at repairing those things until eventually they just don't come back. You know, you make that comment about the economic consequences of something like that. Speaking of economics, in 2021, we've had the whole GameStop fiasco, right? In which a a short squeeze resulted in a 1,500% increase in GameStop's share price. And I've talked to a number of people personally who saw that and it was like this eye-opening moment where they realized wait a minute our whole stock market and financial system is just a messed up game which has resulted in a lot of distrust i know a lot of people personally who are throwing everything they have into cryptocurrency you're seeing that with a lot of large organizations as well who knows what the compounding effect of people moving away from traditional fiat currency is going to have but when it comes to gamestop you know wall street lost billions of dollars in the trading frenzy 30 billion dollars of on paper wealth was created and then destroyed just within a couple of weeks and you think about that nothing about the actual value of gamestop changed they weren't doing anything different they weren't providing any additional value to consumers and yet somehow you can have 30 billion dollars flash and then vanish it makes me really interested to see what's going to happen with the stock market and with investor behavior in the future yeah you know diamond-handed apes over at wall street bets got a lot of flack for this actually right because a lot of people are saying these guys are idiots to think that they could actually make a difference to think that they could really show hedge funds anything you know hedge funds are still making a ton of money off of this and while that's probably true it's also true what you just said that a lot of eyes i think are opened to how messed up it all really is you know i know growing up for me the stock market, investors, all of that, it seemed like such a noble thing. And it seemed like it was fair, like it all made sense. But you look at it now and you just realize how screwed up it really all is and how it's all manipulated, how the rules are all bent to make sure the wealthy become more wealthy. And seeing what happened with GameStop, I guess I can just say that I hope a lot of people see that that didn't see it before. Not everybody knows this, but the whole incident came close to having a severe impact on the stock market. It did influence the stock market for better and worse on certain days, but there was a severe liquidity problem that Robinhood claims they were barely able to avoid by shutting down the ability to buy GameStop stocks, that if they had not done that, would have caused a severe liquidity crisis amongst not just them, but other brokers as well. The whole fiasco just highlighted how fragile the system is. And like you said, it will be interesting to see not only what do the meme stocks do in the future, does Wall Street Bets and Reddit do this again with something else, but also what consequences are there for retail investors, just the normal guys, you and me, whoever downloads Robinhood or any of those other apps, you know, are there going to be restrictions 
further rules in place to make sure that the little guy loses and the big guy continues to win? And what will the reaction to that be? Yeah, and I can only imagine if there were any sort of severe, prolonged disruptions to the stock market. You know, that's where most people's retirement is sitting. That's really a reflection of the state of our economy. Anyways, with all of this, we don't have any sort of crystal ball, right? And I don't think you or I are claiming that 2021, it's going to be as crazy of a year as 2020. But so far in the first few months, it hasn't been any less crazy. And like I mentioned before, doing some of the research and kind of looking back over this last 18 months or so has me sincerely worried for where we're headed. I think a lot of people are shell-shocked after 2020. It was this huge thing. So much happened. But with that comes a sort of numbness or a sort of insensitivity to crazy things happening. Part of my worry is that 2020 was so nuts that things happening in 2021 that we would have considered epic in 2019 may not seem so bad. And I think we're going to see an acceleration of that as time goes on. We become desensitized to collapse. We don't notice that our living standards are being degraded. We don't notice that maybe some of our freedoms are being taken away. We don't notice that things are getting harder and getting worse. And not that I take any pleasure in noticing when things are bad. But I think if we are watching for collapse and we're trying to look for signs, it's not always going to be big epic events that happen every year that are worse and worse. It's going to be a continual grind. It's going to be getting a little worse here, a little worse there. And like you said, we don't have a crystal ball and we can hope that things won't be as bad this year as the last, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, I look forward to next year when we do another one of these, you know, look back on 2021. Hopefully we'll look back and say, hey, that wasn't so bad. You know, we actually made some advances in these areas and got a little bit of a break. Or we'll look back and recount all the crazy things that we never would have expected to happen that happened. But one thing that I do know, and that's life is an adventure. No matter what comes, I kind of just got this attitude of bring it on, go with the flow. We'll take it as it comes, live the experience. And like we said earlier, We feel for people who are affected. We're all affected. We're all going to be affected in different ways. But we can at least try and remember that there are other people out there experiencing the same things. We're a community of collapse. We're people who know what's happening and who know what's coming. Let's stay as a community. Please feel free to reach out to us with any questions, thoughts, ideas, concerns, complaints. And we'll see you next week. Right, in which a a short squeeze resulted in a 1,500% increase in GameStop's share price. I like the stock. You mean the stonk?